Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Eddie, and I'll be reading from the New Testament. The reading is found in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Hello, I'm Kay. I'm going to be reading uh, the gospel found in John 11, 17 through 27. Thank you so much for standing for the reading of the gospel. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to uh, Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you've been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who, come, who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, ma'am. New Life Downtown, let's pray this morning as we prepare to open the scriptures. God, it is clear and evident this morning that you are in fact with us. That we have not gathered in this auditorium, in this school, in downtown Colorado Springs in vain, but that you are with us. And God, that is the prayer that we pray every time we show up to church, is that we would know, in fact, Holy Spirit, that you are with us. That as you are with us, you are speaking to us. That you are looking at the eyes, the minds, the hearts of every person that is in this room and you have something for them. That we are not in here blindly wishing that our God would show up and do the work that only you can do, but we know in faith that you are showing up. We see that. We see that all throughout this room. I think of the words that we sang earlier, that we could sing of your love forever, that what we are witnessing in this room today is just a snapshot of what eternity will be like, where we are singing in love, with love, to love, and that that is the kind of God that you are, is the kind of world you are ultimately calling us to partner with you in creating, one that is rooted and found in love. So God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that those of us who have come in tired would leave with energy, those of us who have come in sad would leave with joy, that those of us who have come in wanting more in this life, we would discover you and ultimately find fullness in that. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated, New Life Downtown. Um, as, oh man, the squeaky chairs, I love that. Oh man, I am so glad to be with you all today. Um, as Blake said, um, I'm one of the pastors at New Life East, um, and I, I would love to be with New Life Downtown on like slightly different circumstances, but I'm excited to be with you nonetheless, uh, to open up the scriptures with you today. And uh, this is not my first time at New Life Downtown. Uh, believe it or not, my first time at New Life Downtown was about five or six years ago. Um, on a Father's Day weekend, I was sitting like in that back section over there, shout out to the back section over there, and uh, it was Father's Day weekend, and uh, your lead pastor at the time, Dr. Glenn Packiam, stood up here and invited everyone in the room to, who was a dad to stand up and raise their hand, and what I witnessed around this room were dads be covered in prayer, and it was one of the first moments that I had been in New Life Church at all, and it was one of the most beautiful things that I had ever seen. Dads who were wondering if they were good enough as fathers, who were struggling to just make ends meet and figure things out, were sat in this room and were prayed over. I saw the gospel unfold that day. It created a space, a sweet space in my heart for the people of New Life downtown, and I share all that with you to say, you guys are a part of a really beautiful thing. Don't take that for granted. You are a part of a beautiful thing. What has happened 
over the many years that you guys have existed and what God will continue to do here in this place. Now, you guys have been walking through, much like us at New Life East, through a series talking about the Psalms of Ascent. And today, we're gonna be in Psalm 126. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, I know some of you were prepared for Jason to preach today and preach on a completely different Psalm, and you are like a really, you're an A-plus Christian, so you read that Psalm in preparation for today. And I'm not gonna talk about that Psalm at all. We're gonna be in Psalm 126. And uh, you guys know this, the Psalms of Ascent are these Psalms that were sung by the people of God as they were on pilgrimage. Now, people sort of differentiate on when these songs would have been sung, whether it was in the midst of the festivals that they would have celebrated, three of them throughout the, the calendar for them, or whether it was them coming back from exile, they had been captured by different uh, opposing people groups and they found themselves returning to Jerusalem for the first time. Regardless, what we know is that these Psalms served as a picture for them of what the journey of faith, journey of life with God, ultimately looked like for them. So we can read them quite as this very literal map of how they would have sung these songs, but it also gives us a picture to think about what the journey of faith looks like in the modern world in which we live. And here's what I know about the journey of faith, and many of you can attest to this, is that the journey of faith is not always easy, that the journey of life itself is not always easy, that we have moments where we had hopes, we had dreams, we had aspirations, and yet what we receive is everything the opposite. We look around at our lives and we feel like our lives have bottomed out. The lives that we were hoping to live have not come to fruition. Or in some cases, we feel like the world has robbed us of the hopes that we had. And I have to believe that when the Psalms of Ascent were being sung, that there were people who were singing them in the midst of those very situations. I also have to believe that there are those of us in this room today who are worshiping, who are giving, who are opening the scriptures in very similar places where our lives have not turned out the way we thought that they would. And what Psalm 126 gives us a picture of is that our God is a God who is interested in restoring our lives. That's the kind of God that we see in Psalm 126. Some of you have maybe heard this said or heard this quote attributed to Mark Twain himself, but he says the words, the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. And such is true with the people of God, especially as we see it in the scriptures, that the people of God often found themselves in situations where life was not going exactly as they anticipated. You think about the moment early on in the book of Exodus where God's people find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They see their friends and their family members beaten and bruised. They see their friends and family members treated as nothing more than, than livestock to move bricks. They see themselves as having been completely battered and destroyed, and they cry out to God, and God hears them. There are moments throughout Israel's history as they even move forward out of the freedom that God gives them, where they're captured. Maybe it's by the, the superpower of Babylon comes in and destroys their homes and destroys their well-being, and they take them away and drag them off to exile, or they experience this with the superpower of Assyria as well. They find themselves often in moments where their lives have been completely destroyed. Everything they thought they were gonna have, they don't have. Everything they thought they were gonna get, they don't get. Every direction they thought their life was headed has been completely reversed and destroyed. And they look at the fortunes that they hold in their hand and it is minimal. And they often cry out to God 
And what we discover about God is he is a God who is interested in stepping in and restoring what it is that has happened to them. When I talk about restoration, I'm thinking about the Hebrew word Shavat that is used here in the Psalms. And that word is a word that represents a complete reversal of whatever fortune you have found yourself in. A complete reversal, a complete turning back of the destruction, the disappointment, the sadness that has unfolded in your life. Because God's people, every time they would find themselves in need of restoration, they found themselves being people without identity, without purpose, without any sense of community. Their national identity had been robbed of them. Everything that they thought they had was gone. And I believe some of you are in here with a similar feeling today. And so what I wanna talk about as we look at what it means for God to be a God who restores us, is I wanna look at what that restoration looks like, and I think Psalm 126 gives us a really clear picture of that. The first thing that I recognize about the way God restores our lives is this, is that God restores our lives by reminding us how to dream again. He restores our lives by reminding us how to dream again. Think about what the psalmist writes here. The very first verse in Psalm 126, he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who what? Okay, new life downtown. (laughs) If I ask a question, I kinda want an answer, and I wanna hear it. He says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who what? There we go, we're, we're learning. I'm gonna teach you something. It's just gonna be how to talk back to a preacher. We were like those who dreamed. Everything had been taken away from them, and yet we are like those who dreamed. We see dreams show up throughout the scriptures. Jacob, at one point, has a dream. He has multiple dreams. One of them, he has a dream where there's a ladder extending from heaven to earth, this picture of what the world will one day be like, where there's no separation of those two things. We think about Joseph, who has dreams about what what kind of person he is being formed into, what the world that he is a part of, him and his family are a part of, is being shaped into. There's a story of Gideon, who we know becomes like this mighty warrior. He has a dream, I think this is one of the funniest things in the Bible, where a loaf of bread goes into the camp of uh, the opposing army, and the enemies are completely destroyed, which some of us can relate to. Carbs are doing a real number on us right now. They're completely destroyed. Or, you think about in the New Testament, there's a moment where Peter falls asleep on a roof and he sees this vision of a sheet being lowered down with all these animals that were once considered completely ritually impure and what God does is he looks at him and he says, Peter, get up and eat. You may be like, well that's not a dream, he's just kind of having a vision. I think dreams and visions in the scriptures sort of take on this synonymous, uh, they, they sort of carry the same synonymous power here. When I say a dream, what I'm talking about is a private moment with God that is rooted in hope, where he reveals something beyond what you can possibly imagine. It's a moment where all of a sudden you see that the situation you find yourself in could actually change. But what's interesting is when our lives have fallen apart, when it feels like they've bottomed out, you know one of the hardest things for us to do is dream. It's hard for us to see beyond what is sitting right in front of us. In fact, those of you who are history people, you're gonna love this. Um, there's, there was a man by the name of Herodotus, and he, uh, the, he was an ancient Greek historian, and he wrote in one of his histories that there was once this lost group of people in North Africa, and it's sort of where we get the, the mythological tale reading of the lost city of Atlantis. And here's what he has to say about this group of people. He says, the natives call this mountain the pillar of heaven. 
and they themselves take their name from it, being called Atlantes or the Atlanteans. They are reported to not eat any living thing and never to have any dreams. What a disappointing life. They never had bacon and they never dreamed. It was hard for these people. But what's interesting is the reason that they never dreamed, the way that he sort of fleshes this out, is this was a group of people that had so far developed their society. They had experienced technological advances. They had experienced educational advances. They had sort of grown beyond what they, they had. They were artistic advances, spiritual advances. So the need to dream was no longer necessary. How many of you in here, uh, just by a show of hands, would say you never have dreams? Like you never, when you go to sleep at night, there's nothing popping up in your head. Anyone? Oh man, when I preached this message at New Life East, there were like 12 people who were like, I never dream. And I was like, I'm jealous of you. You know what a real night's sleep is. The rest of us are like falling off cliffs and, and eating food in the middle of the night. You're just like sleeping like a baby. We're, those are the worst kind of people. <laughs> the point is, what has happened to this group of people as he's sort of presenting them in his, his document of the histories is that they have evolved so far beyond any need to dream. They have no reason to dream. Why would they need to? They can figure it out on their own. And how many of us, when our lives fall apart, take a similar approach? I don't need to have like hope, I just need to fix this. Maybe if I could just put this back together, no one will even notice that something is wrong. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend uh, named Peter and me, myself, Peter, and our other friend, we were hanging out in my house. And um, I love my mother dearly, but the way she decorated her house was just not very functional for a bunch of high school boys to be in. Um, she had all sorts of like decoratives and china plates on the wall. And no offense to any of you who have these things in your home, but a teenage boy wouldn't be comfortable. And um, I remember one day, my friend Peter, we're like messing around in my dining room. And Peter, I sort of push him and he falls back into one of these plates on the wall and you hear it drop and crack into a multitude of pieces. And Peter was like the best of our friends, right? Like he was one of the, he's like a good person, you know, not like me who's just trying to figure this whole thing out, but he's like a good person. So Peter immediately gets in his car, drives to the hardware store, buys every kind of glue that he could find, comes back, he sets up like a big towel, he gets all the pieces and he for the next like four hours is trying to put this thing back together again. We have like long moved on. I'm like, listen, man, it's a plate. My mom will be fine. He spends hours trying to piece it back together. And when he does piece it back together, he finally gets it. But you can obviously tell it's been broken. But you know what we did? We put it right back on that shelf and pretended nothing ever happened. <laughs> My mom didn't know this until two weeks ago. Here's the truth, though. Most of us, when our lives fall apart, we take the approach of, you know what, I'm just gonna take this, I'm gonna put it back together, and I'm gonna get it just right. But you know what's interesting about what God says about how he restores our lives? Is that his plans for you are far beyond anything you could imagine. So you trying to put your life back together exactly as it was is probably not what God is up to. God is probably trying to do something beyond what you could even imagine. He's inviting you to dream, he's inviting you to have hope, but he's ultimately saying, hey listen, if you just try to put this thing back exactly as it is, it's probably not going to work. I think about the people that I talk to as a pastor, 
their marriage completely collapses and falls apart. Rarely have I seen those people in the midst of all the chaos of a divorce and a separation and everything. God doesn't come to them and go, I am going to put your marriage back together exactly as it was. He almost always does something completely different. When I talk to people whose finances, their career has completely bottomed out and they don't know what they're gonna do anymore, God almost always shows up and does something, but he rarely makes them an accountant again. He rarely makes them a pastor again. He rarely makes them a businessman or a businesswoman again. He does something in their lives far beyond what they could imagine. This is how our God works. He invites us to dream again, to see beyond the things that we could control, the things we could manipulate and put back together, and to trust him that what he is doing is something far more significant and beautiful than we could ever imagine. This is what he's doing. One of the other things, though, that I notice is that when these moments of restoration happen in the life of God's people, they almost always begin as these very private moments. The prophets, they hear from God about a vision of what he is going to do amongst his people, and it starts very quietly. These dreams happen when people are away and asleep at night. He gives them a vision in private, but one of the things that I recognize about restoration is this, is that restoration often occurs in private, but it rarely remains in private. Here's what I mean by that. Look at Psalm 126 again with me. Verse two and three, he says, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, everyone say the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. What's fascinating here is the wording that the psalmist is using. Anytime the two words, the nations, are, are used in the Old Testament especially, it almost always is a reference to the enemies of God's people. The very people that show up and attack them, the very people that show up and try to rob them of their dignity and their goodness, the very people that enslave them. So what's the psalmist saying? He's saying the restoration that God is doing in the life of his people is so significant that even the people who hate them are looking at them and going, well, what in the world is happening to them? Why is their life getting put back together? Why is their life looking better than mine? What the psalmist presents is that when God begins to restore our lives, even the people who don't know you that well will begin to recognize that something is happening. That God is doing something of significance in your life. And you know what the psalmist presents to us as the way in which people know that something is happening in our lives? is that you aren't walking around sort of like down in the dumps because what has happened, you are actually filled with joy. Now, half of you just tuned me out because what you just heard was a guy who's talking about when your life bottoms out and is suggesting you ought to be filled with joy. And you're like, this is why no one likes Christians. This is illegitimate. My life is falling apart. I don't feel joy, I feel lots of things, but not joy. Can I read you a scripture that I think might sort of help us figure this out this morning? Uh, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he begins like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, and all God's people said, amen. Now, something interesting about the word meaningless that is used there, it's the Hebrew word havel, let me hear you say havel. And we have translated this in many ways as the word meaningless because the way we can understand it in Hebrew is that it really represents the idea of nothingness, sort of this vast, empty space. But the word havel can also be translated 
as mist, vapor, breath, this small mist in the world. I realize in a room with no air conditioning, this is like a, tr- a, like a cheat code right now because I'm just getting like blasted with cold air. You guys need to bring one of these. He says, everything is nothing more than a mist. Life in and of itself is a mist. It's here one second and it's gone the next. Everything is Havel. Small mist. So families, when you're on vacation and your kids say, this is taking forever, just look at them and go, not really. (laughs) The writer says, everything is a mist. Everything is here one moment. Your life in the grand scheme of the existence of the universe, it's like a mist. In this short amount of time, you get to make a choice about how you respond when your life falls apart. You get to make a choice. And what the psalmist is suggesting is that you have the capacity, believe it or not, when your life bottoms out, to choose joy. To look that situation, those circumstances in the face and say, it's okay, it's okay. I'm not talking about happiness. That's an emotion that can come and it can go. Joy becomes a choice. So when all of a sudden, the career path that you were on and you thought this was what you were gonna be, you decided this in high school and it all of a sudden changes, what will you choose? When the person that you stood across from in a ceremony and made your vows with all of a sudden looks at you and says, I'm not sure that I wanna be with you anymore, what will you do? when that medical diagnosis comes down and it feels like your whole world is gonna fall apart, what will you do? The psalmist suggests that we can do one thing and it is choose joy. And I'm not the only person who thinks this. There's people much wiser than me, much smarter than me who have written things about this. I think about the great Catholic writer, Henry Nouwen, who says these words. He says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and we have to keep choosing it every day. This is what Paul writes about in the New Testament when he says we can count it all joy. We can choose joy. Every time life seems to bottom out and fall apart, you can choose joy. And I would propose to you that choosing joy is actually the most honest way to deal with what you truly feel. Because all too often what we're taught is if we just sort of reject the bad emotions and we embrace the good ones, then everything will be okay. But what actually I think can happen is choosing joy requires us to look in the face of what we are truly feeling, acknowledge it, hold it, take care of it, deal with it as it needs to be dealt with, and then say, and even in spite of all of that, I am going to make the choice to choose joy. This is one of the ways that which God begins to restore our lives. And you know what's beautiful? If the nations, the enemies of Israel begin to see it and start to say, well, look at what their God is doing. Can you imagine what your neighbors might do? Can you imagine even what your friends in church might do? They know what's going on in your life. They know how things are not going the way that you wish and all of a sudden you show up and are choosing joy. They might go, I don't know, I don't know how they have this kind of relationship with God, but I want it. Imagine what your barista might do. Imagine what your therapist might do. Imagine what your relatives 
your cranky in-laws, your kids who have walked away from faith might do when they they see you choosing joy in the midst of circumstances. What a beautiful picture that would be to represent the church. The last thing that I notice in Psalm 126 is that I think when our lives fall apart, when things become really challenging, we have a temptation. Actually, we don't. People around us have a temptation to sort of lob these very cliche ideas at us that are like, you know what? One day in heaven, God will redeem it all for you. And you think to yourself, I hate you. (laughs) The truth is, best as I can tell about Psalm 126, is that God is not interested in restoring your life for like someday, way off in eternity. He is quite interested in restoring your life for today. He's quite interested in restoring your life for right now. Again, look at what the psalmist says in these last few verses. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will now reap with songs of, there's that word again, joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The metaphors, the pictures that the psalmist uses are real life pictures. The Negev was a river that was almost never full unless there was like torrential downpour. It was almost always completely bone dry. In order for it to be full at all, it would have meant something miraculous would have happened. People who are singing songs will no longer sing songs of lament. They will all of a sudden find themselves filled singing songs of joy in their homes, in the city streets. People who were holding on to something and it had nowhere to put it, will all of a sudden find themselves with a place to plant and we will see fruit come from it. This is the picture that the psalmist presents, that God is not looking at you going, hey, I know life's been hard. One day I'm gonna make it up to you. He's not interested in restoring you someday. He's interested in restoring you today. But the truth is, the way that restoration comes never quite looks the way that we expect it to. I wanna invite the band. You can start making your way up here this morning. I think about my own life. I, uh, I grew up in a single parent home. My dad left when I was really young. I, I can't even remember my dad being around. And uh, my mom and I had a bit of like an awkward relationship growing up. And I didn't become a Christian until I was 16, I think. So I'm a high school kid, a junior in high school. I come to faith and I begin to hear ideas that like God, he makes all things new. He'll wipe away every tear, he'll put things back together. You know what's interesting is that God never came to me and said, hey, Rory, um, I know your parents haven't been everything that you wish that they would be, so I'm just gonna give you a new set of parents. He didn't do that. He didn't go, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna drum up something to look exactly like what you have. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just make it up to you in that way. You know what I found is that this longing for family that I had is God didn't give me new parents, he gave me the church. He gave me the church. He gave me the very family of God. I found myself as a 16 year old standing with men and women who were older than me, more mature than me, who were willing to walk alongside me and care for me. I found myself standing next to men and women who were same phase of life as me. I found myself new brothers and sisters. Later in life, I found people who were younger than me who were looking at me going, would you help me figure out how you have what you got? And I'm like, I don't even know what I've got, but here we are. God didn't put my life back together by giving me something that I had had before. He gives you something completely different. He never restores your life in the way that you think he will. But what he promises 
is that he is quite interested in restoring your life right here and right now. And for those of you who find yourself in that place this morning, you don't believe me. And I understand. Because you know when it's hardest to dream is when you're right in the middle of the difficulty. You know when it's hardest to choose joy is when you're right in the thick of things. It's hardest to believe that God will actually do something when you're right in it. But there's a line in this Psalm that I think is so beautiful. He says, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Brothers and sisters, what I can promise you is this, is you may not see it right now. You may not see it tomorrow. It may take months, it may take, take years. I can promise you because of the kind of God that we have, you will one day be able to stand up and say truly, the Lord has done great things for me. That truly the Lord has stepped into your life in the middle of brokenness and frailty and he will do something significant. He will restore the places that you have seen fall apart and he will restore them in ways that you could not imagine. And you know how we see this the clearest? We see this at the table. That while humanity as a whole was in its most broken, frail, destructive place, God doesn't look at us and go, hey, I'll figure it out sometime. God has a plan. And he comes in the flesh, the very person of Jesus, and lays his life down so that you and I might not just sort of coax through life, but that we might find life and find it what? Abundantly, to the full. It would not be limited and held back from us. This is the way God restores us. New Life Downtown, can I pray over you this morning? God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in this room. I pray for the people in here specifically that they are looking at you, oh God, and saying, God, would you restore my life? Would you fix it? Would you set it right? Would you put it in its proper place? Would you, God, would you clarify the things that are going on? And God, what I know to be true is most often when we are praying those prayers, what we are asking is for some sense that you are in fact with us. That you are the kind of God who would be true to his word. So what I pray over my brothers and sisters today is for that restoration to come to fruition. That the faith that they have been believing with, they would see the fruit of it. That the trust they have been trusting with, they would see they would see the goodness in the land of the living, that it would not be withheld from them. God, would you help them see it? Would you give them the eyes to see it? Would you give them the ears to hear the goodness that is coming towards them? What you have promised, Lord, is that your goodness would follow us all the days of our lives, even when our lives feel like they are falling apart. So we pray that that would be true. We ask that you would meet us and continue to meet us even as we head to the table. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. And this restoration of things that have been broken, this world, things in our lives, leads us back to this place again, a place where we practice brokenness becoming whole. Because our brokenness 
is by ourselves, but then the redemption, the restoration is found in the one who was broken on our behalf, Jesus. And our brokenness is often by ourselves. We do it alone. But at this place, he calls all of us together to be unified as a body knit together with him as the head. This is Jesus's table. And all who believe in Jesus as the true king of the world are welcome to receive regardless of your church background or affiliation. If that doesn't describe you, thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us and, and, and being with us in a worship service on a Sunday morning. We're honored that you're here. And we, we encourage you, keep coming back. Keep asking questions about God, about Jesus. But if today you are ready to begin following Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time, we invite you to join with us as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness and place our trust in him for salvation yet again. The corporate words of confession will come up on the screen. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to you, words that are true not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again the mercy of God. That Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners and that this proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you stand together and greet those around you who also have been welcomed in this peace and share and pass that peace with one another. Jesus is here, so lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, all over this room, for all of his restoration, for all of his redemption, for all of his work. It is a good and a joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image. You breathed your life into us. You did it again today. When our love failed, your love has remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. It was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. 
And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. The table is a place of remembrance and a place of encounter, and this summer we are singing the Holy Spirit to come and meet us this morning. Let's sing together. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. invite the service up. These are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. This is your first time here. We come forward for communion. You can just watch those around you or you can scan the QR code on, their, on the screen to see how we do it. If you are unable to come forward, please ask someone around you to bring the elements back to you when they go through the line. This is our worship response to come again as a unified body to Christ who unifies all of us in him. Let's worship together as we come to the table now.